Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 8th, 2014, and this is episode 1275 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Wednesday, midweek for a lot of folks, and uh, heading downhill from here. That's why they call it hump day. Anyway, this hump day is going to be a fun one. I've got John Bush of SovereignLiving.tv and about a million other cool websites that the guy runs on today. If you've never heard of John Bush, you're going to like this guy. I met him a couple years ago up in uh, New Hampshire at Liberty Forum, and uh, he's one of those kindred spirits. You hear him talk, and you go, this guy and I think a lot alike. Uh, he's an amazing guy, and he's done a lot for Liberty. And he's taking a different approach now. He's been priorly been a political activist, and now he's becoming a kind of a political atheist, if that sounds familiar. And working on his own individual sovereignty and documenting it. I think you guys will love what you hear out of John today. And uh, I'll have him on in just a moment. Before we do that, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by supporting the show and helping us be here for you five days a week. Monday through Friday, most weeks out of the year, that is. We do occasionally take a vacation. Anyway, someone who hardly ever takes a vacation is Marjorie Wildcraft. That's because she spends all her time in her backyard anyway, producing her own food when she's not traveling around the country, seeing how other people do the same things. And she put all of that information into a DVD series called Growing Your Own Groceries. Not only a series, it's one DVD. Uh, it feels like a series because there's so much information in it. There's a bonus CD that comes along with that with a lot of documentation on how to build and do the things that you'll see in her uh, DVD. It's awesome, and it's scalable. You can uh, use her techniques on a small quarter-acre lot, or you could use them on a huge hundred-acre lot. It's up to you. Check it out, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. I say it all the time, triangle of gun operator efficiency. There's three components there. There's you, the operator, the gun, because if you don't have a gun, you don't have a gun, and ammo. Well, you can buy the gun and the ammo, and pretty much if you buy it, you've got it, it's there. They are storable. They don't degrade over time. And as long as you buy quality, you've got quality. When it comes to you, the operator, that's not the case. Your skills do degrade over time. Your ability to function degrades over time. You need training. You need to train on your own, but you need professional training as well. And if you're going to take professional training, you want a trainer that's going to train you while you're there, but also teach you to train on your own when you're gone. That's what you'll get from Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of professional instructors at Fortress Defense Consultants. Uh, check them out today at FortressDefense.com. Again, I'm telling you, you are the linchpin that makes that gun and ammo work, and you need the training to do it right. Frank is one of the best in the industry. And remember, if you can't get up to uh, to Frank's school, put together a group. Get five, six, seven guys from work, something like that. Get in touch with Frank. He'll help you find, you know, get together, find a local range or something like that. Or if you've got private land where you can do it, he'll bring training to you. I don't know a lot of people that'll do that. Again, fortressdefense.com. Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys about the Members Support Brigade. That's how you can support the work that I'm doing here. You join by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members, and you can see how to join there. You can join by check or money order or silver uh, by mail, or you can just join with PayPal right online. 
comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. So when you're done with the show, if you think it's worth a couple dimes, consider joining. And uh, if you do that, you'll get discounts to over 40 supporting vendors. Uh, I am uh, going to be bringing up some new things for you guys this very week. I'll have some announcements and some new discounts for you. Stuff you're probably buying anyway. The membership, therefore, will pay for itself. Some of the discount uh, memberships that are given away inside this discount membership cost as much as it, so they pay for it all by itself. How about $200 worth of free eBooks in there as well? Some content you'll get nowhere else and knowing you're supporting the show. And hey, if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, a paramedic, or a firefighter, again, active duty or prior service, you get a service discount to thank you for your service uh, at home and or abroad. Just send me an email, put service discount in the subject line, and one or two sentences tell me who you are and what you're doing or what you did if you're prior service. Email address jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. The website for today's show notes to get links and all kinds of good stuff, you guessed it, the survivalpodcast.com. And for some of you, I guess you'd say the survivalpodcast.com. Make sure you put the the or the the. They're spelled the same. They are the same, but some people say one and some say the other. At the beginning of survivalpodcast.com, you'll find me. Or if you go to Google and type in survival podcast, I'm not hard to locate. Anyway, with that, I've got the uh, housekeeping wrapped up. Want to real quick do our history segment. Remember, we are taking a look at this year in history on every episode, the same Number of the episode is the history. This guy, Alex, is awesome. Alex Shrugged, uh, you know, provides this service to me. He's just awesome dude. Uh, here's what he says. A diesel fuel that will get you drunk was developed in 1275. Raymond Lowell is not just a missionary converting the Muslims to Christianity, but he also works on the fundamentals of voting system theory, writes fiction, works in mathematics and science, and what is most important to the modern day, He discovered diethyl ether, also known as ethyl ether. Not only is it a possible diesel fuel alternative, but during Prohibition, diethyl ether was used as an alternative to alcohol. I really don't recommend you do that, though. But as a fuel, it might have some real promising things. Uh, but yeah, 1225 that that was invented uh, by a guy that was a missionary, worked in mathematics and science, worked on voting theory. Do you, do you see a common thread with some of the noteworthy people of the time? They were renaissance men. They had multiple talents. They did multiple things. They were not specialists. That's something we can learn from in our modern society, in our quest for liberty, which we'll be talking more about in a bit. How about what happens when you make something tax-free? It grows, it expands, and it becomes successful. Really? Can we prove it with history? How about this? In order to quell a rebellion of the peasants, Count Floris V of Holland God of the peasants offers concessions to various towns, including freedom from tolls when crossing his lands for the fishermen of a ragged little town called Amsterdam. In time, Amsterdam will become the financial center of the world. Amsterdam credits the count for its prosperity to this day. G, create tax freedom and a nation prospers. What an ironic idea. Um, next up to the equal treatment under the law, England, England's parliament passes the first statute of Westminster, guaranteeing equal treatment of rich and poor elections free and fair without threats and restrictions on the sheriffs, which offenses are bailable and which are not. After adjourning, King Edward I will call parliament back, mostly to squeeze tax money out of the barons. 
So we got the opposite thing going there. How about the War of the Cow? Would nations really be stupid enough to fight over a freaking cow? Apparently so. A guy from a district in southern Netherlands stole a cow in another district. He then tried to sell it in a third district at a local fair. The owner recognized his cow and contacted authorities. After a murder, political intrigue, and a castle destroyed in arson, the war of the cow is on. The war will continue until 1278. That's three years if you're counting, folks. 60 villages will be destroyed and 15,000 people will die all for one stinking cow. The lesson in history from that is nations go to war over bullshit all the time when they shouldn't. It costs innocent lives. Uh, that's all I'm going to read from the stuff that Alex sent me this time around. That's some interesting stuff. Yesterday, somebody commented in the comment section, and it's a person that's made a lot of comments without being a sniper, so I, I don't know if it was a sarcastic comment or legitimate, but it, it's an interesting comment. It said, you, I should know I can't cherry pick events in history to fit a lesson that I'm trying to teach. Um, I would need a time machine to do that because... This stuff's pre-prepared by somebody else for me, and it happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago. I'm not cherry-picking anything. I'm just extracting the lessons from the stuff that we find noteworthy from the year. I don't really get that. Um, again, maybe it was sarcastic and just trying to make his own point and not well-delivered. Please remember when communicating with people online in forums and blogs and comment sections and stuff like that, Text is genuinely the lowest form of communication. A lot of people think it's the other way around. They think text is a high level because you're on record and it can be examined and thought about. And But you know what's missing? <laughs> Syntax and, in some ways, context and voice and other cues. In other words, I could say to somebody, you're a moron, and it sounds very harsh, and it should, and it's, you know, Not very nice. But I could say to somebody, you're a moron. And it has a totally different feeling, doesn't it? I mean, guys do that to each other all the time. You see your buddy do something stupid, you're like, you're a moron. And, and it's like, okay, you got me, whatever, right? But when you, when you if you were looking at your buddy and you said, hey, you're a moron, he might be like, dude, what the hell, right? Please understand that when you're communicating with people online. I don't know why I brought that up. It just made me think of it. Anyway... It is an awesome day, and I am really grateful to have uh, our guest with us today. And I am really excited about the topic, and you guys are going to even hear him do something some of you have been trying to do to me for a long time in the uh, second half of this interview. With that, I'd like to say, hey, John, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Jack, thanks for having me. Hey, John, you know, I met you the first time uh, a couple years ago at Liberty Forum in New Hampshire. I saw you again last year there. Uh, and I'm pretty familiar with you and, and your background and, 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 you know, your efforts toward liberty. Uh, but maybe quite a few members of my audience may have never heard of you. So could you just kind of talk about, you know, how you ended up doing what you're doing? I mean, most people don't sit around at like 14 and go, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be an advocate for liberty and I'm going to go out and do all these great things. They're like, you know, fishing or picking their nose or whatever. So how did you end up like interested in, in the liberty movement and, and get to where you guys are in life? Well, I did plenty of nose picking on the on the journey, but uh, yeah, I was always kind of an anti-authoritarian rebel growing up as a child, uh, rebelling against my parents and teachers. And in 2002, I caught a documentary on cable access in Austin, Texas, about 9/11. It's called 9/11: Road to Tyranny by Alex Jones, which many people are familiar with. And it kind of just 
you know, changed the way that I thought about what took place that day and opened my eyes to a new perspective on history and on world events. I uh, did a lot of research, dove pretty deep down the rabbit hole of the conspiratorial view of history, started exploring the push to create a global government, uh, was naturally an anti-war activist because uh, I saw that what they told us on 9-11 was a lie, and got into the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, started uh, really favoring those ideas and the philosophy of the Founding Fathers, started an American Civil Liberties Union chapter in college at Texas State University, uh, thought I was a Democrat for a little while just because I was so vehemently anti-Bush. I thought that was the thing to do. And then, of course, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats took control of the House and the Senate, and they promised to end the wars, but they only escalated the wars. So I started to see a little bit through the left-right paradigm. And then in 2007, Congressman Ron Paul caught my attention, and I was introdu introduced to the philosophy of libertarianism. And from him, I was introduced to Murray Rothbard and, and started really seeing the value in the ideals of a stateless society uh, at the, around that time, we started a Texans for Accountable Government. It's a local political action committee that is still around to this day, five years old now, just celebrated their five-year anniversary party. We focused a lot on state and local activism, mainly pushing back on the police state and Big Brother. And more recently, in large part, uh, thanks to inspiration from my wife, Catherine, uh, we've been focusing on, you know, our goal is to create a free society. We've realized if we do want to create a free society, the most important thing we could do is take a deep, hard look in the mirror and contemplate what we're doing to contribute to the problem and how we can change our lives in order to live more free. And I strongly believe that if more people adopt that philosophy, if they simply live more free and start living a free lifestyle, a sovereign lifestyle as we're calling it, then uh, we'll all be able to create the free society that we're yearning for, perhaps only within our generation or a generation or two. So lately we've been focusing on post-political direct action and changing the way we live so it's more consistent with the philosophy of liberty. You know, like me, you, you talk to a lot of people that have had similar walks through uh, the concept of, of finding out what liberty really is. H have you found that most people eventually realize that there, there's, there's not likely much of a political solution? What I talked about yesterday on the air was we can't ignore the consequences of what politicians do. We do have to fight their ideas and their actions and deal with their consequences, but focusing on the politicians themselves, choosing which side of the mafia family we support is pretty much a fool's errand. Uh, and that the solutions are largely individual action. And, and I know that's what you're doing, and I'm just curious, as you talk to others, do you find the people that at least end up happy uh, as far as, 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 as the fight goes uh, come to the same conclusion? Yeah, I mean, in our experience, we did the political activism heavily for like half a decade, both Catherine and I, myself in Austin, her in Kansas City, doing similar tracks. And we just came to realize, you know, a lot of it was just banging our head against the wall. And we'd have these small victories that ended up being empty victories. It was like every step that we took forward and the time it took for us to do that, we were taking a 100, a 1,000 steps back. And they weren't even forward steps. What they were was preventing a further pushback. You know, it was like a uh, just preventing the growth of the state a tiny bit rather than actually creating a more free society. But I've found there's a lot of people that are still deep into the politics. Uh, I think it kind of is the easy way out, you know, going and, and voting and supporting candidates and even knocking on people's doors asking for their support of candidates. It's, it's just a typical solution. I think a lot of people are into it because it's very low risk. Uh, whereas putting some skin in the game and, you know, maybe opting out of some some institutions and creating alternative institutions is a little more complicated. But we're hoping to lead by example and show people the value. And I genuinely feel more free than I've ever felt in my life, way more free than when I was spending hours on end lobbying the state legislature and, again, banging my head against the wall. And I think if more people 
just stop and start living free and stop dealing with all the politics and just get out of that system because it rubs off on you when you're dealing with all those evil politicians. I think people will find not only more freedom, but they'll also find more happiness. Well, I think they, they end up demonstrating a way to live versus talking about a way to live. I mean, those are two entirely uh, different concepts. And I, I, I you know think that in reality, the most powerful weapon the American people fail to use uh, appropriately is their apathy. They're apathetic about a lot of things that are really important. And the more apathetic they become to government, uh, actually, the better off I think we are and, and focus on how to solve their own problems. Yeah. Because the government needs us to care about them or they have no power. Yeah. And that's really what it comes down to. The only way the state maintains its power is through a belief by individuals that they're necessary. Yeah. And, and, the, and I'm not talking about being apathetic toward the consequences of their actions. Again, I'm talking about being apathetic toward them in general, uh, picking the D or the R you know, once every two years and thinking it matters, mm-hmm. uh, and, and turning then to your own individual uh, solutions uh, leads not only to happiness but actually leads to action. Sure. And that's what you guys are doing. And, and you've decided to start documenting this. So you've put together something we talked about a year ago. It was an idea back then, Sovereign Living, the show, right, the TV show. And it was just an idea when I talked to you in January last year. And now you've got you know, some, some real traction with this and got this going on. Um, and looking at it, you've got great production quality in the stuff you, you've put out so far. Um, How would you put all this together, and, and who are you working with on it? Yeah, the the idea of sovereign living is something Catherine and I have been kicking around for about three or four years now, and about three years. The the original concept was going to be a, it's a spoof on Martha Stewart living, and it was going to be Catherine, you know, dressed in a nice day dress, out in the garden, maybe going to the gun range, talking about canning, and uh, you know, it was just an idea in the back of our heads. We started this nonprofit, the Center for Natural Living. It's a tax exempt five hundred one c three. We had an angel donor that. Uh, gave us a good chunk of money to get off the ground, and we thought, hey, maybe we should put this sovereign living idea into play. And we linked up with Karmakazi Productions, which is a startup in Austin, Texas. They do video and audio production, and they're also like-minded. And uh, in talking with the director of the show, Seth Blaustein, it's uh, Keith Ware, he's the owner, Seth Blaustein's uh, the, the video guy. He thought, you know, Kat, you and John are characters. What y'all are doing is, is pretty exciting and educational and entertaining. Why don't we turn it into a reality show and kind of flip this whole reality medium on its head? It's mostly a bunch of garbage and drama and people getting wasted and fighting. So we thought, but it still appeals to the masses. They like to see people's lives and how it relates to their lives. So we thought we could take that and actually give it some substance. So that's where we got the idea of Sovereign Living, the reality show. And it's it's basically just following us in our quest to become self-sufficient and lead a voluntary and natural life. And, you know, we're pretty humble about it. We're not experts in any of these areas, but we're, we're taking it one step at a time. And we're hoping to inspire people to do the same and to take action, just take that leap of faith and understand that you know, we may not be able to become 100% self-sufficient. But as long as we're working, if we're moving the ball towards self-sufficient, moving the ball towards a voluntary and natural life, I think people will find more value in their lives. And, and that's what the show hopes to demonstrate. Well, yeah, and I think what you actually have is actual reality television. I guess it's more reality internet television, but the the key there is reality because what we've been sold to uh, as being reality TV is what I refer to as non-reality TV. Mm-hmm. The, the crap they're putting out on TV is not reality. It's not even like when they show these dysfunctional idiots, yeah, they're highlighting their dysfunctionality. They, they really are, but... The whole thing is is pasted together. Nothing could be more indicative than that of something like Doomsday Preppers. I mean, I know some of the people personally that have been on that show, 
that if you if you met them and went to their homesteads or what have you, you would never have the impression of them that you get from that show. Yeah. And what you guys are doing, you know, I'm sure you put a little bit of uh, some thought into some uh, scripting here and there to make things interesting and engaging, but it's genuine. It's who you guys really are. Yeah, for sure. Uh, they're actually calling reality TV, mainstream reality TV is known as scripted reality TV these days. So we, you know, we've actually been approached by a couple mainstream uh, television production companies that work with networks, and, and they were interested in picking up Sovereign Living, but each and every time they indicated to us the same thing, that were we to sell the concept and the show to a network, that in the end the network would have creative control. And, you know, we're pretty confident that they would do as they do on doomsday preppers and try to make us to look silly or crazy or they would want to water down the message and in the third episode for example it's all about natural home birthing and we really take uh, the hospital process to task and some of the uh, some of the medication that's given to mothers to task episode five is going to be all about natural health and we're really going to dig into obamacare and the pharmaceutical industrial complex in general and we thought you know most of these television networks, their advertisers are the very same pharmaceutical industrial complex companies that we're going to be going against. So we thought it'd be best. God help you when you get into the food side of things because yep, yep. they're hugely dependent on the budgets of the food advertisers. And the food advertisers are never advertising high quality pastured poultry. You know, they're advertising crap. And, and when you start calling food crap, the advertiser doesn't want that. So they, <laughs> they have to like, we can't do that. Yeah. So we decided to do it yourself, uh, you know, be consistent with the whole Sovereign Living philosophy, and we're excited to get it out. We have the first episode. It's public at SovereignLiving.tv, and we have three episodes done so far. We're currently working on episodes four through six and still trying to round up a little money to finish those six episodes. Our goal is to have a full 12-episode season, and uh, right now we're working to finish the first six episodes. And, yeah, it's really exciting. It's, I think it's more genuine. Um you know, it's not really scripted. There's some things where we, we reshoot it because maybe the conversation we had was a little bit lengthy, but pretty much what you see is what you get, and uh, we're excited. There's a little bit of drama mixed in, too, playing out between Catherine and I. If the cameras were there 24-7, you'd see a lot more drama. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you, you get the toned-down drama because we're conscious of the cameras being there, but it tells a good story, and there's a lot of insight and cool little story arcs that are being played out. That's awesome. Um so have you had any dissenters on this? I mean, generally speaking, uh, I know you're doing a lot of the same things I am, and we picked an area where no one cares. Um, but a lot of times when you start doing stuff like you're doing on your property or what have you, you have neighbors that don't like it, or you have family members that go, what the hell's wrong with you? Uh, are your neighbors kind of on board with the whole you know, lifestyle? Uh, how do they feel? How does your family feel? Well, my, I've been pounded on my family for 10 years now, and, and in recent years, they've been really supportive, and they've always been there at all our Liberty events, and they would go lobby and, and participate. So they're they're of like mind, and I think Kat and I are actually responsible for encouraging them and inspiring them to take a more natural approach towards their diet, and they're also, they also started a garden. My dad actually inspired the water storage system that we have set up at our place, so the parents are great, and they're extremely supportive. Uh, Catherine's parents are a little more absent than my parents, and that actually plays out in episode one for people to check out. Uh, the neighbors, the neighborhood that we live in, there's about 15, 16 houses. It's all on one street, and each one of the properties is about 2.4 acres. And there's multiple properties that have horses. A couple houses have goats, and about five of them have chickens. So people are pretty like-minded, and again, it's 2.4 acres. It's not the biggest piece of property, but it's pretty well spaced out from the neighbor's. 
Now, episode two is actually all about dealing with community problems without relying on the police. And the neighbors directly across the street from us, we've had some pretty big problems with, uh, especially dealing with the way they treat their animals. They had two dogs. One of them's chained up across the street right now, and it was like 20 degrees last night. Oh, wow. And uh, we, we, my roommate snuck an igloo over there. We have a, old, a dog igloo that we're not using. He snuck it over there, but just the other day they moved the dog away from the igloo. Uh, the dogs, would, they would be chained up. They'd get off their chains, kill our chickens. And uh, we actually went and talked to him multiple times to no avail. Finally, I wrote a letter that was pretty strongly wor- worded informing them that if their dog comes on our property, we're going to take it and find it a better home. And if, if they can't treat this dog better and take better care of it, then we're going to work to find it a better home. And they ended up letting us take the dog, actually, and we took it to our friend who later adopted it out. So we're, we're trying to deal with these problems without the police, and, and that's something that pans out in the show. And it's, it's, it's something that we've actually had pretty much difficulty with i can see why so many people just rely on these centralized institutions it's just what people know it's the easy way out but you know if we really want to change the world then we're going to have to change them in our actions so so the neighborly relations are actually part of the story well that's really cool and it's cool that you found a a constructive solution to that i know people whose solution would be look dude your dog killed my chickens your dog's on my property get him to shoot your dog and and that's that's a very primitive mentality it's not a very enlightened mentality. Your solution was, look, you know, you can't take care of your dog. Somebody else will. Mm-hmm. And people that are usually like that with animals don't really want them. And basically, you gave the guy a solution. Yeah. Let us let us take care of this for you. And you know, and it takes more work than calling the police. But if you got the dog a better home, the dog's good. Your chickens aren't being killed. Mm-hmm. And the guy's not like that jerk called the police on me. Yeah. Even if your relationships aren't the best they could be. They're better than they would be if you relied on the state. And the state, if it did anything, would come take the dog and throw it a pound. Yeah, it would probably be put to death. And, you know, you call yeah. the police. Maybe the police will look over at our property and say, oh, you got a bunch of chickens over there. Maybe we should sniff yeah. around and make sure everything's legal around here. Plus, we're, we're pretty certain that it's all Spanish speakers across the street. And uh, it's possible that some of them may be undocumented or quote-unquote illegal. I, I don't like that term, but I would hate to, to have someone's family broken up just because there were some problems with the dog. So you never know what's going to happen when the police come. Somebody could end up getting shot. They could end up shooting the dog right there in front of us, which is the last thing that we want. So yeah, police yeah. are bad news. There's always boy, solutions. That has, happened. has it not? Oh, yeah. The police have shot people's dogs, and I don't mean mean-ass attacking pit bulls. I just mean <laughs> You know, Labrador retrievers and stuff like that. It's happened way too often. Yeah, it's insane. So, yeah, we're just trying to, to demonstrate, again, lead by example and show people that there's another way. It may not be the easiest way, but we think it's the most just. And, and if we are to create the free society, again, we got to put we got to pound the pavement. we got to not just walk, talk the talk, but we got to walk the walk, more importantly. What do you guys got going on right now as far as, you know, getting this thing going forward? Are you doing some fundraising, screenings, anything like that? We just did an Indiegogo campaign, and uh, our goal was to raise 50k. We raised about 25% of that, so that was pretty exciting. Right now, we have a sweet DVD. It's uh, episode one through three of the show, and we're selling those for $20 at SovereignLiving.tv. And again, the first episode is public. We're also looking for people that are interested in sponsoring the program. We're uh, offering 30-second and one-minute announcements that are like television advertisements to fit in. And uh, we've gotten some great support uh, from some folks in the Bitcoin world, actually. And, Jack, you actually supported us with a pretty generous uh, donation, so we definitely appreciate your help on that front. But we're looking for people that support the message 
and that understand you know that we're doing it ourselves again we could have sold out to the mainstream networks but in the end the product would not be what we want it to be so we're hoping that people will step up and, and help us get this out there yeah, and I mean, I don't generally talk about the fact that I contribute to things, but I, I will just a little bit here because I feel that if I ask my audience to do something, uh, to support something, it should be something I'm willing to support. So I think it is important uh, that the folks out in the audience know that I did you know, make a contribution to this quite a long time ago, actually, when you were just getting it off the ground. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, when you when you have it really ready to roll and we can really put some wind in your sails, come back to us and we'll do that for you. So... Folks, I'm asking you to do what you can to help this. I really love what John's doing. I love the work he's done in the past. And uh, this type of thing is what we need. Um, in the prepping community, in the homesteading community, if you look at the forums, the chat rooms, Facebook, we are constantly bitching, and I think with, with, with good reason, about the way we're portrayed in mainstream media and about nonsensical, non-reality TV shows like Doomsday Bunkers. And God forbid they're going to do it. I keep getting casting calls where they're trying to do a Doomsday Couples now, like a dating <laughs> show based on this crap. And, and the, the way that you, you make a real difference, though, isn't by bitching about it. It's by supporting what's good and turning your back on what's nonsense. Yeah. Uh, so this is an opportunity to do that. As you've been doing it, um, what has been like the most rewarding part of this? Because I know there's some challenges with it because a lot of times we'll video something we do around here. I could have done it, been done with it, done something else, and started a third thing if I just did it that way versus having to set up the shot, making sure it gets done right. So there's a challenge to documenting this stuff, and it's very important, and I find that different people get different real rewarding things out of it. What's What's been really rewarding for you in doing this? Well, the most difficult part has been the fact that uh, most of it's on my shoulders as far as the fundraising, the visioning, uh, calling together the days that we're going to do it. And, of course, we're doing everything with two kids, which has made it all the more difficult. So it's been difficult finding a balance. But at the same time, it's totally worth it. We've done uh, half a dozen screenings or more at different Liberty conferences and in Austin and Man, when people see the show, especially when they're able to watch the first three episodes, they are totally blown away. Uh, there's actually a couple out of Florida that watched it, and they had told us that we inspired them so much. They were planning on selling their farmstead. They decided to stick it out and, and step it up. So hearing that and the comments on the YouTube video and the comments on our Indiegogo campaign, there's just been scores and scores of people that have taken real practical solutions from the show and applied them in their lives. And, there's cool little segments. We call them Sovereign Nuggets. Each episode features about four or five little 30-second to one-minute animations that explore you know, how to build a hugel culture bed, how to build a wicking bed, how to set up a water storage system, uh, you know, w why a Pitocin might not be a good idea induction when it comes to labor. And I think those little educational nuggets, again, not only are you, are you getting into the story, you're entertained by what's going on, but we have little practical how-tos, which is something new to the reality world. It's educational reality TV uh, and there's people that are learning from watching it. So just getting the feedback from people, having them inspired, and having them actually put some of the stuff that we teach in the show to practice has definitely been the most rewarding part of it. You know, I have a kind of an oddball question for you, I guess, that you just made me think of here for some reason. I have an, an older great uncle um, that was kind of, uh, I guess, a hippie before there were hippies. Mm -hmm. It's maybe a way to put it, like a hippie in the in the 40s and 50s. Nice. You know, and... Um, He's like, you know, part of what you guys are like seeing here is just basically a reprint of the old Back to the Land movement. 
And this is my Uncle Stefan, and I told him, you know, I don't think so. I, I think it's different this time around. I think the climate of this of this craving of a return to basic values and providing for ourselves has a whole different level of gasoline going into the automobile with the ability to exchange information, uh, with the ability to learn faster so you're not completely on your own, even if you are on your own physically. Mm-hmm. And I think it is different this time around than it was, let's say, in the 60s and 70s when the back-to-the-land movement kind of thing came around. Do you, do you think so as well? Yeah, I think there's a lot of big ideas that are out. And again, the Internet is able to connect people to share those ideas and to take them to the next level to kind of build on each other's excitement and each other's innovations, really. And, I, you know, take aquaponics, for example, like that is just spread like wildfire. You don't have to go sit at a physical seminar in order to learn about it. You just pop on YouTube and you got a full how to. You can even download guides on how to set up aquaponic systems. But I think when you add the technology and the connectivity that's present and you couple that with the state of affairs politically and geopolitically, people are so fed up that they are just dying for another way to do things. And I strongly believe that this century will see the decline of the nation state and the rise of the sustainable and autonomous community. And we'll see more and more nation states. We'll see the larger ones start breaking apart, like we already saw with the Soviet Union. Maybe the United States is next. And I think more people are going to unite both digitally and in local communities and basically leave the old way of doing things, whether it's hierarchical food production, uh, whether it's pumping yourself full of pharmaceuticals, or whether it's relying on centralized state institutions to solve our common problems. I think we're, we're kind of in a new renaissance period, and it's really exciting to be a part of it. And I think people end up in, in this liberty mindset, even if that's not why they start. There's a lot of people in you know the permaculture movement that come from the kind of uh, socialist mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it seems that it's really easy to talk about giving away somebody else's stuff but if they actually start down the productive cycle and they work hard for their things, they might find that they're very generous people, but they're not so keen anymore on somebody else deciding who gets the fruits of their labor uh-huh. because they actually work for it. So I've gotten to the point from a political ideology that I've kind of let a lot of it go. I tell people I'm kind of this anarcho-libertarian, but I really don't give a damn what you are as long as you get into this the, kind of the productivity, the research, the understanding – because I think that most people end up at least more liberty-oriented than they already are. Yeah, for sure. Here in Austin, there's a great meshing between these you know, anti-establishment, progressive, permaculture, environmentalists, and radical, uh, anti-government libertarians. And there's just a meshing politically and uh, post-politically in these institutions and in farming and gardening. And more and more lately, like I've become disillusioned with the quote-unquote liberty movement. And in, in large part, more important than a person's politics is if they're just a good human being. Because there's a lot of a-hole libertarians that I would much rather avoid. I'd rather hang out with the guy that's a socialist, but he's a nice guy and he cares about me and he cares about my family and his family. You know, just politics, it's kind of overrated. And people's philosophies yeah. are, are somewhat overrated. As long as you're a good person and you're not going to try to steal from me or coerce upon me, uh, then let's work together to create a better world. Yeah, definitely, man. I've always said, like, you can have all the socialism and communism you want as long as I am not compelled to participate. Yep. Right? And that, that's the only – and I think that's, like, that's actually a real libertarian. A real libertarian doesn't give a damn if you want to do that. 
but they just don't want you to make them do it with you. In fact, I am happy to have communal elements in my life that some people would call communism, I guess, because they don't know what communism is as a political system. Mm-hmm. But as long as it's voluntary and as long as it's by choice. If if you happen to live close to me, you don't, but if you lived closer to me than you do, and we had two or three other people like like ourselves living close to us, and we all looked out and said, you know, we're using livestock, raising our land and what have you, but occasionally we need to slash from a tractor. But it would make more sense if we all collectively purchased a tractor and shared it that's a communal element to our community, but it's completely by free choice. And if you came to me one day and said, Jack, I want to sell out my ownership in the tractor to you, and I chose to buy it and you walked off, you can leave. And I think that's that's real living. I mean, that's real humanity, but it has to have that element of voluntarism. Yeah, for sure. That's that's the root of it, the voluntary association. And yeah, even, especially at the family level, there's a lot of communal aspects of, of family living. Uh, you know, we all try to share ownership of things. And you all have share. one roof. That's right. Right. I mean, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you see, like, a, hey, this isn't your roof. <laughs> you know, stay out of my you know, room. Share bathrooms and driveways and cars. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and the voluntary aspect is is what it's all about. Because if you can choose to be in a communal setup and share ownership with people that are of like mind and also like work ethic, then it's totally acceptable. The problem is whenever you have this mass centralized institution that forces everyone to participate over this vast arbitrary geographic area, now you're coupled in with all these losers and people that want a free ride and, and people that are, you know, that their values are antithetical to your values. That's when it's a problem. And I think that that mindset, I, I call it anarcho toleration. If we could just tolerate other people's ideologies and the other people's way of life and just say, you know, we'll support you. You know, maybe we'll trade with you. We can be friends as long as you don't try to impress that upon me. I don't have a problem. I think there's a lot of value in that. Well, and I think more and more people are coming to that realization. Even people that do come from that, you know, socialist mindset are starting to realize, like, even if this is what I want, well, the state is just a lousy record of trying to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, yeah. it's never been done successfully by a state. And the, the diehard, that when you have a communi- com, you know, com, com, communication with them about this, and you say, well, tell me when this has worked, we'll always go back to indigenous peoples, indigenous cultures, and tribalism. And, and my response always to that is that's closer to anarchism than it is to state-based anything, mm-hmm. because that's a, that is a pure volunteer. If you didn't like it, you just left. Yeah. And in th- that time, there wasn't, you know, there were some territories and all, but there weren't physical boundaries and border check agents and things like that. So when people were part of a, a communal society, they were there by choice. Yeah, and if they didn't like it, or if they were bad actors, they would get ostracized. And I think ostracism is one of the most powerful tools we have to to deal with problem folk in society. But yeah, tribalism, it's great. Uh, there was just a massive shift whenever the first state started popping up and, and those diehard socialists and democratic socialists, statists of all stripes, you know, they think that uh, even John Locke, who's a big libertarian hero, they said that government was created in order to protect the life, liberty, and property of man because man felt insecure in the state of nature. Well, I think that's hogwash. I think governments were first created to... Uh, pillage and tax the people. You know, you used to have tribes of Vikings and destroyers would come through and they'd go from community to community, raping the women, taking all the resources, burning it down. Along the way, this is like a Rothbardian view of the origins of the state. Along the way, they decided, hey, why don't we just stick around and instead enslave the people and we can tax them 
indefinitely. And that's how we had the, the genesis of the modern state. You know, and then it went through its feudal incarnations. And now we have one of the nastiest examples of statism in that there's that quote, uh, none are more hopelessly enslaved than those that falsely believe they're free. And that's how it is in America. You know, everyone thinks we're so free when in reality we're some of the biggest tax cows in the country. And that big tax base has turned into one of the most oppressive uh, military, uh, technocratic, you know, economic dictatorships that now has a global reach. And I think it's pretty nasty. So, yeah, statism is abhorrent and I'm excited that yeah. so many people are rejecting it. And economics is a big part of how it's done. And based on the way we run a society today with economic debt, we now have slaves talking about their freedom while placing shackles on the feet of their children. And it, 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 that, that's, when you said that, that's immediately the, mind, uh, the image that came to my mind, is that we have these people today completely enslaved by economics and shackling their children with future debt so they can have a little bit more comfortable of a cell today all while believing themselves are to be free and telling their children they're free and then telling their kids stuff like you got to go to college, whether it's right for you or not, and get some more debt. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's maddening, but you know, you can only beat up the problem for so long. It is the solution that's encouraging. And I just see like drove if you would have told me in 2008, when I started what I'm doing that we would have, you know, 80, 90,000 people a day listening to this show. I would have said, I don't, I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I think I have this little tiny sliver of this massive multi-million person uh, market that's starting to show up in places we never really expected it to. Yeah, and the mainstream consciousness is starting to catch up with the prepper movement, the liberty movement, a lot of alternative movements. And I think there's more people out there than we suspect. And I strongly believe if, if all those people that believed in genuine freedom – if rather than complaining or going to vote, if they all just made the decision to opt out of what they find unethical and immoral and live by what's right and wrong rather than what's legal and illegal, I think we'd find freedom within our lifetimes. There's enough of us out there. We just got to take that leap of faith. And of course, it's difficult and it's scary. And, you know, there's always the presence of that gun in the room just in the back of your mind, the coercion. But I think there's strength in numbers and there's strength in unity and there's strength in truth. And as a movement, we have all three of those things. We just have to stand up and, and say no more, and I think we'll be free. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've talked about there's like two solutions. So, you know, the, the classic thing we keep seeing is some guy decides or some lady decides they want better food for their family. They don't have much of a backyard. They have a nice sunny front yard. They put a garden in. Next thing you know, somebody's blue hair bitches. The police come down and tear the garden out. And there's two ways I see that being successfully fought. One would maybe work, but probably less preferable to the second one. The first one would be that when when the nuisance abatement team or whatever status nonsense shows up, there's 200 neighbors standing in the front yard going, I don't think so. And and that might be good, but I think what would be better is if 200 neighbors all went, we like gardens, we're going to put one in two, (laughs) and you show up and there's 200 guards, now you're you're done. And I think that if you want to overwhelm the state, that's how you do it. You do it with so many people taking sovereign actions – that they they become overwhelmed with the sheer numbers and the totality of it. And in the end, this is what I said yesterday, I think you'll dig this, that the people of this country are irresponsible. They really are, with, with their freedom and their liberty. And the, the Congress of this country and the, the government of this country, in many ways, is like the people's children. Like, we created them. They didn't create us. We voted them. We put them in office. We fought for them. We, we advocate for them on our side or the other side. And... They're irresponsible. Well, if there are kids and they're irresponsible, what's that say about us? 
that, that that's a reflection. And when have you ever seen irresponsible parents raise responsible children? And, and, and that's where we're at now. We have an irresponsible society that's that's given birth to an irresponsible government. And if we go looking for that solution inside that body, it, it's just a pointless, wasted time. Whereas if we go ahead and decide we're just going to keep doing this in such numbers that eventually it's easy to go out and step, what I'm trying to say is it's easy to go out and step on John Bush or Jack Spirico. You can do it because there's one of us. But when there's thousands and thousands and thousands, it gets a little bit more intimidating for them to go messing around with it. Yeah, I've been uh, kicking around in my head uh, for the past few years this idea that I've, I've come to call freedom cells. Essentially, it's like a mutual aid society, and it's a way to create this strength in numbers where you start by simply linking up with 8 to 12 of your closest friends and family. Around 8 to 12, doesn't matter exactly what number it is, just a smaller group. And this is your core inner cadre that you know, you love, you trust. Most people already have groups like this, and they, they just haven't identified it. Then you go and agitate to build another 8 to 12 groups of 8 to 12. And before you know it, you have 80 to 120 people. This 80 to 120 commit themselves to one another. The 8 to 12 commit themselves to one another on a higher level. Once you reach this point, you continue to agitate for another group of 100. Before you know it, you have 10 groups of 100. Now you have 1,000 people that are all committed and united and commuted, committed to mutual aid and a mutual defense compact. If we carry this out from region to region, before you know it, we could have 10 groups of 1,000 or 100 groups of 1,000 or 10 groups of 10,000. And uh, now we're having the strength in numbers, the 100,000 people that are committed to one another. And within these groups, some of the things that we're doing, for example, within our freedom cell, we, we've set goals for ourselves to uh, have a certain level of food stored, to make sure everyone in the freedom cell has firearms and knows how to use them safely and proficiently in defense of their house or their community. Uh, we've made, we're going to make sure that everyone is set up with uh, alternative means of communication, not based on the central uh, uh, grid. And we're also going to make sure everyone has a solid bug out plan. And then we're going to extend that outward to the other groups of 8 to 12. And I, I think setting up networks like this in a decentralized way can, before you know it, will have a de facto voluntary society, a de jure voluntary society, an actual voluntary society, at least operating with one another. But I strongly agree with you. Like, you know, when when the rubber meets the road, it, we need people to stand up and defend one another or else the person that's standing up is, is just going to hang alone. You know, it's, it's sad yeah. to say, but that's what it's coming down to right now. We need to form these tight bonds because things are just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. And without strong communities, people are just going to continue to go along for the ride because they don't know any alternatives. And I think more importantly, because they're afraid to do something different because they think they'll stand up and get butchered themselves. You know, I, I, what I love about this, this freedom cell model is its sustainability. Yeah. Um, I get emails all the time about people being oppressed, and I have a pretty big footprint. And occasionally I'll say, look, I think this is a fight we can win. This person has a legal defense fund, and we'll rally the troops, and we'll raise 15, 20, 30 grand. Yeah. And, and we'll go do some good with it. But I can't come to my audience every single day with another person like that and go, let's do this one, let's do that one. Let's. And, and eventually, if I do it as a media personality enough, it gets to where even if I don't intend it, it looks like grandstanding. Mm -hmm. And I don't want that. If you have these groups that are voluntarily associating with each other, then the, re the response is spontaneous, and it, it's genuine, and it's organic, yep. where when someone gets stepped on, it, it, it doesn't require the news to come out and do a story or a podcaster to feature it. It's just the network gets activated, and all of a sudden, 
and here's what I think where the rubber meets the road is that a lot of times authorities will choose to, to take on people that they know are weak. Yep. And if they look at that person and they think they're weak, and they, they, they you know, file some kind of thing, they're going to take away your guard just because that's so common. I'll use that example. Mm. And immediately that person has three different court filings back at them, like 48 hours later. They're like, yeah, maybe this person isn't as weak as we thought. Yep. And because my concern is that the media always portrays these people being attacked as weak and helpless. It's some poor old lady, and it's her only way to feed herself. And while that might be true, I don't like to fight for positions of weakness. Or they'll say, well, this guy's a veteran. Well, great, fine. But what we should be upset about is not that they're doing this to a veteran, that they're doing this to a person. Mm-hmm. And we and those those networks, that's what it's about. Somebody in my group is being jacked with. Yep. So, damn it, I'm going to do something about it. I don't care if it's the 68-year-old lady or the, the 24-year-old returning veteran. I don't care which one it is. That's my group, man. You're not doing it. Yeah, and you know, ideally, people start adopting that mentality with people that live in their neighborhood, even if they're sure. even if they're not of like mind. But yeah, I think that that model, you know, it could be different, but that's just the model that I've came up come up with. Uh, there's a lot of value, even if uh, you know, say one of the parents is sick, and now you need someone to help watch the children. You go to your group of eight to twelve. Say you lose your job, and mm-hmm. you know you're out of work for two months. Rather than going to the state for unemployment, you go to your group of a hundred and see if everyone could chip in twenty five bucks to make rent. You know, and everyone knows that you know I'm going to chip in. This guy's not a free rider. I know him. I trust him. He's part of my network. I know that he's going to get my back once he's back on his feet. And I think something like this, whatever incarnation it happens to come up uh, being, uh, I think it could eventually replace the state altogether. People just need to know that there's someone out there for them and, and just have that mutual respect and mutual love for one another. Well, I kind of tell you, what I never see happening in that type of a group dynamic, 100 people, 10 people, I don't care what it is, where let's say you and I are in the same group, you lose your job, John, and I'm like, you know what, I'll chip in a hundred bucks for the next two months and somebody else does it and you guys get enough money together to get by for those two months. You will never be on employment for 99 weeks asking for an extension. Mm -hmm. That that will never happen in that model because eventually we'll be like, dude, dude, you need it. Look, I'll help you get a job, but you're going to get your ass a job. The, The other side of that, though, is when we do that, there's an emotion in there from your end if you're the recipient that's completely devoid in the state. It doesn't exist anymore, and that is gratitude. If you know the people who are contributing voluntarily to help you, you have an innate sense of gratitude, and that gives you a a sense of moral obligation. I don't have to tell you you have it. You just, as a human, you just feel like, I owe it to these people who believed in me to prove that I was worth the investment. The emotion when the state does it, is the exact opposite. It's resentment. Mm -hmm. The people on the receiving end often actually resent and despise the person who provided for them because they see the state as the provider, but the state was just the middleman. And the state pitches the poor against the rich, the well-to-do against the not-so-well-to-do, to the point where while they're receiving the very benefit of that person's labor, they resent them. And the person doing the giving also has resentment. We're in a society like you're talking about. Not only would you be grateful, I would be grateful that I had the opportunity to help you. Mm-hmm. And so we've taken gratitude and replaced it with hostility. And, and, and to me, that is like, that's actually how they control everything. If you take that away and you actually, I think if you're going to have welfare, well, then you get your welfare check this month, John. It should have my picture on there. This guy <laughs> gave you this money. 
right? You should be – you didn't get it from Obama. You didn't get it from a congressman. You got it from me, mm-hmm. and you should see it that way. And I'm not saying there's not people that need help. I'm just saying there's other ways to do it. And it, when you disconnect the giver and the receiver, you lose the gratitude. Yeah, yeah and there's a lot of people out there that – you know, they have good hearts and they mean the best and they genuinely think that absent this state social safety net that people would be out on the street. And to be honest, right now, you know, uh, Murray Rothbard talked about uh, the button. If you could press the button, would you press the button? You press the button and it eliminates the state entirely. That means a lot of people would be out on the street and a lot of people would be starving. Ron Paul would always advocate the gradual approach. I'm not sure where I fall, but I do know for sure that right now, uh, if crap were to hit the fan or if we were to end the state immediately, a lot of people would be left uh, struggling and starving. And many people would die even that have, you know, that yeah. are dependent on the medical institutions as well. So I think it's important that we can we can totally overcome the argument that most socialists and statists have that say, well, what about the poor folk? What about those in need by stepping up and saying, well, here's what we've been doing for the past few years. Not only have we built a network of people that we know and trust, 500 strong, that we all take care of one another. But we're going out and helping the less fortunate, people that we don't even know. I, I think the movement, for the liberty movement, the prepper community, there could be so much more phil- philanthropy. So not only can we talk about the value of free freedom and, and how the philosophy of liberty can benefit everyone, but we can actually prove it by helping people and helping them voluntarily and demonstrating that the best way to solve our common problems and help those in need is through community, not coercion. You know, I've had that push the button question, and and my response has always been, if you could push the button and do it this second, would you do it? My answer, because of what you just said, being my same response, is no. I don't want that much death and destruction. You, If, if I have you dependent on, on a drug to where the physical withdrawals from that drug will kill you if I take you off it, as, as somebody trying to give you treatment against the drug, if I just take it from you, it's irresponsible. I have to, to bring you off that if you put that button in front of me and said this will start a 10% a year process that will will do this in 10 years, I'd probably push it. If you put that button in front of me and it said 5% over 20, I'd say anybody that can't adapt to that doesn't need to be here. And I know that sounds harsh, but it's it's kind of how I, like I would push that button without a second thought if it gave people especially with the knowledge it was coming. Mm-hmm. And but I don't think like that's a great it's a great way to open somebody's mind, right? It's a way, great way to give somebody the ability to see beyond the state. But I think that it's, it's, it's fantasy. It's not going to happen that way. It's only going to happen when we do these things like you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like the idea of an uh, inverse relationship between statism and voluntary cooperation. And I think that's, that's how it's going to pan out. As we build these alternatives, we'll, we'll demonstrate that we don't need to rely on the state. More people will realize it. Now we're building more alternatives. Now people are opting out of the state. Before you know it, we reach a, a point where there's more voluntary cooperations and in alternative institutions than there are coercive mechanisms. And I think it could work like that. Uh, you know, we talked about the political, you know, the, the lack of efficacy in the political actions. And I still see, you know, as you said, there's still value in holding people's feet to the fire. But if that's the mm-hmm. only thing that we do, you know, Ron Paul had the Ron Paul revolution. But I'm for peaceful evolution, not revolution, because when you look at the word revolution, all it is is revolving in cycles. And if all we do is get involved in the political channels, we're never going to advance the ball forward to the point where we can abandon the state altogether. We'll simply be reforming or minimizing the harm that the state does. If we really want to create a free society, it's up to us to opt out and to create those alternatives 
to, again, prove our talking points, to show people, to demonstrate the value that lies in voluntary cooperation, not just to talk about it. And then, again, we could render the state irrelevant if we start solving all the problems that the state solves or that the state tries to solve. It creates more problems, really. Uh, we could solve them ourselves. I think that would be the most important thing we could do for all the detractors and to just demonstrate it, again, just to show it, to prove it, to live it. Well, it's what we do in permaculture. People say, well, you can't grow food on that type of land, and then you do it, and then there's nothing to say. Yep. Right. Then it's like, well, uh, well, well, we did it there, too. We did it there. Oh, they did it in the desert. They did it in Jordan. And they grew lemons in the Alps. And all of a sudden, you're just like, they're overwhelmed. People that are detractors to the, that, that system look at it, and they finally just go, I, 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 I freaking give up. Yeah. Because there's, I, I can't make a coherent argument anymore because there's too many examples that can be just rolled out in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I think even in that world, we have a long way to go, but that, that, that path is set because it really began in earnest in 1978. I think this current, like there's always been this, this move toward minarchism, anarchism, uh, and, and voluntarism. It's always existed. But I think that the, what's going on right now is new. And I'm, I'm careful when I say stuff like that because everybody in history of anything always thinks it's different this time around. You know, you got to temper that with some reality. Everybody that, believed the world was going to end, believed it was different this time around, and yeah, we're still here. But I, it does seem like this modern version of this has attraction that's never really existed before, and I think in some ways it's because people are being left with no alternative. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the Occupy movement, for example, who you know started out really with the concept of we need more government, quickly found out that wasn't going to do anything. And when they, I think the, the biggest thing that those people learned is when they massed in these places, all of a sudden they had to see to themselves, mm-hmm. right? Because they, they had to do it. And I think it was a big educational experience for a lot of them. And I think that there's a lot of people going through their own version of that experience in their own lives right now where the 99 weeks ran out and you're not getting any more. Um, you had to start figuring out what you're going to do. And because we have the interactivity of the Internet today, when people start looking for solutions, they actually find solutions. And then they try it. If it works even just a little bit, it feels pretty good. So maybe I'll do a little bit more of it. And it seems like this whole momentum is different at this point in history. Yeah, for sure. I think the Internet and the technology has a lot to do with it. And I think the Occupy movement's a great example. Like, as you said, they wanted to start with all these Wall Street reforms, and we need to pass legislation to do away with this income disparity. And then you know, a couple years down the road, you had mutual aid when, when a hurricane came in through New York. And they have there's all sorts of great mutual aid networks that grew out of the Occupy movement here in Austin, which I think was one of the stronger local movements. It's still alive and kicking today, and they're not doing po- politics. They're doing... Uh, mutual aid. I think it's a beautiful thing. But yeah, the internet's there. Uh, also, people that are in these third world countries or that are in total dictatorships, again, I think that this country is probably even worse off because everyone thinks that it's not a dictatorship when in reality it is. Uh, they're able to see through the internet that people are living a different way. Before, mm-hmm. they may not have even had knowledge that there is an alternative way to do things. Now it's right there at their fingertips. All they got to do is see it try it, and as you said, if it provides any bit of value, then they're pretty much on the path down the rabbit hole. There's no turning back, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the war propaganda of the, you know, like World War II era, and you know, calling the the, the Japs and the Nips and things like that, and they're treacherous, and the caricature cartoons and all, mm-hmm. that was even prevalent up into the Vietnam War. It's very hard to tell Johnny that some kid that lives in another country is is a horrible person or nuts or crazy or whatever when he's Johnny's Facebook friend. Yeah. 
Right. It, it's it, so that this 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 uh, it's almost like an enlightened globalism, I guess. That's an oxymoron if there ever was one. But the, it, it's not it's not a centralized authority globally. It's global communication where I can talk to somebody now as easily in Australia as I can in Austin, as I can, you know, across the street uh, on the other side of the road from me because of these new methods of communication. It's not just phones. It's Internet. It's, there's there's a visual aspect. I can see who that person is. I can watch them suffer, and I can watch them triumph, and I can see the commonalities. And it's so much harder to manipulate a society that we need to kill that person so gas will go down 10 cents a gallon mm-hmm. than it is when that person's never seen, heard, or talked to anybody from there, except that one strange guy down the road that, that seems to be like them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's People are realizing that we're all in this together, you know, the, the humankind as a whole, and you know, there's cultural differences and religious differences, but I think one of the things that pits people against each other the most is just this the statist mentality. And really, it's the it's not even the people themselves; it's the people's supposed leaders that are the ones that are driving it all and, and, and pushing people against one another. I think absent all that, people will realize that we're just humans. And then you enter technology like the ability to communicate and enter Bitcoin into the picture, and we're all trading with one another. Why the hell would we want to bomb someone that we're, that's providing value to us voluntarily through economic exchange? I'm yeah. really excited about yeah. the possibilities. And I think, yeah, it, it is kind of a, a paradox that you know our gut says we should be against globalism, we should be against this whole one world idea. But when you boil it down, you know, like it would be great to have a global voluntary society where there are no nation states, there are no borders. They're just people yeah. that are interacting peacefully with one another and benefiting one another. Well, I think what you'd have is multiple voluntary societies throughout the world. Yep. So there would be like the global totality that we can't deny that it exists. There's there's one world. Mm-hmm. It, 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 to say that there isn't a one world is dumb. There's only one. Uh, but then the voluntary associations, like I might associate with somebody in, in Australia at a higher level than someone across the street if I happen to have a higher degree of compatibility with that person. And, and having that type of a global infrastructure is, is an awesome thought. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think it, it's still we people are starting to lose track of the localism, too. Uh, and the Internet, it, it provides, a, a, again, a, another paradox in that we're able to connect with one another and form bonds and learn about different types of communities and cultures. And there's value in that. And it's bringing the humanity out in us and, and having us appreciate it. But at the same time, there's a lot of people that all they do all day is chat behind the computer and Facebook, yeah. and they're missing out on that genuine human connection, which is something that I'm really concerned with. And I see it in myself, and uh, we're trying to avoid Im- imparting that onto our children, uh, although you know, our two-year-old loves to watch the iPad and check out Netflix. Uh, but I-, I think it's important that we have a delicate balance of both. We're, we're not... We're not Luddites. We're embracing the technolo- technological evolution. We're embracing this whole worldwide consciousness shift and community that's being created. But at the same time, we're not just stuck buried in the computer. We're still getting out and shaking hands with our neighbors and having the potluck dinner and inviting them over to barbecue and getting our hands dirty in the garden together. I think it's important that we strike a balance. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always, like, trying to explain that balance in everything, including survivalism, has been like, when you're a kid, you're learning mathematics. First, you learn your times tables, your addition, your subtraction up to 12, and some basic rules. And then you learn to do multiplication and division and long divisions and fractions. Then they give you a calculator, right? And the calculator opens up a whole new world, mm-hmm. but you don't not learn the fundamental mathematics and go straight to the calculator, or you are a slave to the calculator. And this technology is the same way, this communication. It's great that we can talk to the person in Australia or Japan or 
uh, Russia or Iraq or wherever and see the commonalities, but we shouldn't lose the capability of building community locally and doing shit. I mean, that's like, like the biggest thing I want to teach America is you need to get out and do something and you don't have anything coming to you. And if you think you do, the only thing you do have coming to you is a good kick in the ass. Um, I, if I could get America to see that, I think that we'd be at least on the right track toward getting all these things done. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of people that are, you know, worked up. And again, back to the whole politics versus direct action thing. You know, I think anybody, if they're going to go spend hours on end lobbying or knocking on people's doors, you know, you ought to be knocking on their doors, introducing yourself and sharing some of the, the fruits of your labor with them, you know, before you go out and get all politicked up and get ready for the campaign and spend hours on end at the campaign headquarters, make sure you got at least a garden in your backyard. Make sure at least you got some water stored in your closet. You know, there's some some fundamentals that I think a lot of people are missing that, uh, as you said, before we move on to these bigger and better things or start trying to influence the political system, let's make sure that we're able to take care of our own household and our own families first. Well, and don't you think that if 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 I met you as a new person living in my neighborhood, if I let off with, hey, dude, here's some tomatoes from my garden, yeah. uh, that I would make a lot better of a connection than noticing that you had a, a Hillary sticker on your car and, and bashing you as a stupid Democrat? I mean, if, if the goal really is to, to further the relationship, and if the goal really is to win the battle of ideas – then isn't it better that we start off with the genuine connection rather than the the ideological difference? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That, and that's something we try to utilize with the neighbors across the street rather than – at first it was kind of heated and we were a little divisive in the way that we communicated to them, which was difficult, again, because they speak Spanish only. But then, you know, we started bringing them a dozen eggs every once in a while and they came over and borrowed our shovel and, and now – their children are playing with our children. And I think, again, if we do want to create this cohesion and if we do want to advance the ideas of a voluntary society, that's the way to do it, by going out and being a good person. That's far more important than who you vote for, the bumper sticker, the, the type of clothes or the car you wear. It's if you're a good person, if you're, if you're peaceful, if you add value to others around you, I think is where, what it all boils down to. I definitely agree with that. Now, you guys are doing this thing with a TV show, but you also have something called the Center for Natural Living. What, what's that all about, John? Yeah, Center for Natural Living is a 501c3 tax-exempt nonprofit organization based out of Austin, Texas. We started it in January. It's actually the parent organization that's producing Sovereign Living, the show. Uh, donations are tax-deductible, by the way. The mission is to demonstrate the value of voluntary cooperation and natural living in the areas of sustainability, family, and health by creating educational media and helping families to fulfill their basic needs. So one of the ways that we're creating educational media, of course, is Sovereign Living the Show. Another project we're working on currently in order to help families fulfill their basic needs, it's called the Safe Water Initiative. And it's in partnership with the local uh, fluoride activist group, Fluoride Free Austin. And we're going to purchase at least 100 fluoride water filters and give them out to low-income families who have young children so they can avoid giving their children the toxic chemical uh, that's fluorosilicic acid that's you know, graciously added to the water by the local city council overlords. And I think it's a great way that we can, again, demonstrate. There's been people lobbying the city council for about five or six years now to get the fluoride out, and the city council always sits on their hands, I believe because they get millions of dollars worth of CDC grants and they don't want to take sure. up the boat. 
So we're saying, you know what? Fine, city council, you're not going to do anything to help these people. We're going to circumvent you, and we're going to go directly to the people to help them avoid the fluoridated water. If you won't stop putting it in, we'll take it out. That's right. It may be a little more difficult, but but we're going to do it. So we're encouraging people to donate. We got a great deal. Every 50 bucks, we'll give one family the gift of safe water. We're also asking people, this is for Austin only if you're going to receive one, but we're asking people to sign up. I'm sure you have a strong listener base in Austin. If, If there's a family that lives in Austin that isn't able to afford a fluoride water filter, they retail for like 75 or $80. We're able to get them for $50, which is pretty much wholesale. Uh, they can sign up on the website, austinsafewater.com, austinsafewater.com, and we'd be happy to give them a fluoride filter so they can avoid it for their young children, especially if you have infants and toddlers. Like This stuff literally lowers IQ. It yes. creates all sorts of bone problems, increases the risk of uh, cancers, endocrine system, thyroid problems. So we're, we're hoping to educate people about that and at the same time, like you said, provide a proactive solution to actually make change in people's lives. You know, there's a couple things I like about that fight. Number one is the fact that eventually you just say, screw it, we're going to take it out if you keep putting it in. But if you're going to have a political fight, to me, that's a political fight to have. And, and the reason is, if you get that done, eventually on the other side, you actually get them to stop putting it in there, then it's done. It's not like fighting over a piece of legislation that just gets replaced with another piece of legislation or didn't really mean what you thought it did or just changes the, the name of the guy that's oppressing you or changes the, the which side of the, you know, whether it's the left or right foot being used to put a boot on your throat. It's actually something that's been done. You know, when they decriminalize marijuana is another example to me. That, that that's, that's not who's in charge. That's something that was made illegal is no longer illegal or something being forced into human beings is no longer being forced into human beings. So it's a, it's, it's a fight that has a clearly defined victory. And I think if you're going to be politically active at all, the, you need to pick fights with clearly defined victories. Yeah. You know, we, we say there's no clearly defined victory in, in this war of the governments or that war of the governments. But, man, if we're going to have a fight, we better know what victory means. Yeah, I went through a period when I was first becoming more of an anarchist where I was kind of hard on political activists. But I came to realize, like, there is value. You can't say there's not value in decriminalizing marijuana. You can't say there's not value in lobbying the city council to stop the fluoridation of water. So I think if people are to participate in politics, first of all, ignore anything that's coming out of the federal government. Even if it's Obamacare, there's the nullification (laughs) solution on that front. Second of all, focus on the local and state politics and avoid the stuff that's like, like... the group that I uh, helped to found, Texans for Accountable Government, they got involved in a, in a battle recently to, to stop this uh, bond measure that would have added more debt to, to build affordable housing. And then last time they got involved in something pushing back on this increase in tax to build a medical school. And of course, both times they, they won. It was a pretty slim margin, but you know, my thing is you know, that's just a little gradualism. Build, first yeah. of all, insulate yourselves from all that tax nonsense and try to build these alternatives so you don't even have to contribute to that. But more importantly, if you are going to get involved politically, as you said, do it to something that has a quantifiable victory that will actually reduce the scope of intervention that the state has in your life. It won't just have you simply paying a little bit less taxes. It'll have them out of your life in a, diff- in a different way. I think that's what You know, they're desperate that. because in some states now what they've started doing is like if you show up to vote, for stuff like that, like bond initiatives and and, and, and uh, constitutional amendments and stuff like that, they only count your votes if you vote for the other stuff, <laughs> right? So like the, the, that tells you they're afraid. Wow. Like like they're scared of apathy. That's that's what I've been saying. You brought up something else that I think is a big game changer, 
uh, Bitcoin. Yep. Uh, I, I, it's something I've been very slow to adopt, but I'm more and more seeing the beauty of Bitcoin and other decentralized currencies. And what got me recently was China banned putting Bitcoins into the bank. And people made it like it was a big blow to Bitcoin. And I'm like, why in the hell would you ever want to put your Bitcoins in a bank? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, this kind of like. In fact, I'm afraid of the day that they say it's okay to put bitcoins in the bank. I think that if there's anything they'll screw up bitcoin, that's that would be what it, what it is. Yeah, and unfortunately, there's a lot of big uh, proponents of bitcoin that are actually pushing for regulation because they think it'll make it more legitimate. I think the value in it is that it precisely is this outside of the state system. And yeah, literally for the past six months, bitcoin has been an obsession of mine. I've been familiar with it for a year or two, but. Ever since I started using it, I do this uh, daily news service called the Liberty Beat, and it plays here on 90.1 FM in Austin and some other radio stations throughout the country. And I pay the five people that work with me, I pay them all in Bitcoin. And it wasn't until I actually used the Bitcoin as a, a, a means of payment that I genuinely saw the value in it. And since then, I've been obsessed. I just launched a, a, a media marketing and consulting firm. It's called Sovereign BTC. There's also a blog people could check out at SovereignBTC.com that has some good in, uh beginner's information but uh yeah i'm i'm way into bitcoin i think it's completely evolutionary and it's really going to change the way people think about the relationship between the individual and government and if we can show people that you don't need to rely on government or centralized coercive institutions in order to provide a a valuable means of exchange we can also show them that you don't need to rely on government to provide health care we don't need to provide rely on government to provide justice or even defense i think it's just one of these it's like opening a Pandora's box because it's actually working. It's global. It has value, and it's amazing. And if you're interested, Jack, I don't know if you receive Bitcoin donations or not, but I'd love to help you uh, navigate the waters and set up. Dude, I would love for you to help me with that because the only thing holding me back from Bitcoin is like most people in their 40s. I don't know how to do it. I mean, really, I don't know what to do to set up because I have like this mem- – all I sell is a membership product. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could do the manually. I could set up a thing where if people could manually send me a bit, you know, the, the, the money in Bitcoin, mm-hmm. that we could set up their uh, account the same way we do if somebody sends us an ounce of silver. Yeah. But I just don't know how to set it up. I looked at it, and I was trying to fund it. It seems like you have to already be doing it to be able to – like you have to do like a, an international wire transfer, your bank money or whatever, and – um, just with a million things to do. So if you can help me with that, I'm sure my audience would appreciate that because I get at least one person a week asking me if I take Bitcoin. Oh, that's great. Yeah, there's a huge barrier to entry. I'm hoping that can be overcome with new innovations in the technology and new apps that come out. And it is relatively in its infancy, which is funny because everyone says it's volatile, it's, it's, it's worthless. But, of course, anything that's brand new is going to be volatile. And when it, when it gets greater uh, adoption, when more people are using it, the speculators won't be able to manipulate the price as much. But there are applications, actually, that are pretty simple to use that allow you to set up recurring donations. So I'd love to chat with you more uh, yeah. sometime in the near future to, to help you get that set up because that will be I'd very valuable for your listeners and for you as well. Well, and here, here, this is what I love about Bitcoin. Bitcoin proved me right even when I was a Bitcoin skeptic. And what I mean is I've always been an advocate of precious metals for an intrinsic value and a store of wealth, mm-hmm. but it's also just basically it's like an insurance program. You don't put all your money in precious metals. But I've always also said it's not necessarily a solution to our currency problem, and all the gold bugs always say only gold is money, mm-hmm. what have you. And my contention with money has always been there is no such thing as money in reality. Money is in a, psych- a psychological agreement mm-hmm. that – all exchange derives its value from the economy the exchange occurs in. Yeah. And the money is only a way that we account for the exchange of value. 
that the money itself has no need to have any intrinsic value because it draws its value from the economy. And people say, well, you're a Keynesian. And I'm like, no, I'm just telling you how it works, right? Because Bitcoin proves that. Where does Bitcoin get its value? Is it because you have to mine it with really complicated computers? Not really. What, what stabilizes it at all is that we know how many Bitcoins there will ever be and there can never be more. It's, it's, it's fractional, it's exchangeable, and it's convertible. But other than that, the where it really gets its value is Jack Spierko will sell you a membership in his member support brigade for a Bitcoin. And Jack Spierko can take the Bitcoin and donate it to John Bush so that he can fund his Kickstarter or Indiegogo. And then they can take that and use it somewhere else. The fact that it can pass along. And it, so that means it's, it's the value inside the network or the economy that gives all money its value. And if anything has ever proven that to anybody, it would be Bitcoin. Yeah, for sure. what it does. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, great things that you brought up. Uh, and I reject the notion of intrinsic value altogether because all value is subjective, right, as Austrian sure. school proponents know. So you know, they may say gold has intrinsic value because you can use it for industrial applications, but when crap hits the fan and no one's willing to accept my gold, I'm not going to be able to boil it down into soup, you know. Uh, like, I mean, Bitcoin uh, faces the same problem as that, but... Uh, if people see value in it as a medium of exchange, then it can be utilized as money. And the cool thing about Bitcoin, which a lot of people are unfamiliar with, is there's actually two different uh, incarnations of Bitcoin. One of them is represented with an uppercase B, and the other one is represented with the lowercase B. The lowercase B is the currency, the actual coin, the digital currency that you trade in exchange. Where I see the real value and where I do believe there's quote-unquote intrinsic value where I see there's actual value that people can utilize is in the uppercase B Bitcoin, which is the Bitcoin network, the system that's been created, which is decentralized, which is the largest, the most powerful supercomputer on the world, even like hundreds of times more powerful than the United States government's most powerful computers. And it exists in a decentralized way. And this network, which utilizes the blockchain, which is this public ledger of account, it can be utilized for all sorts of things besides money transfers. Say I had 100 acres, I could use the Bitcoin network, capital B Bitcoin network, as a means of transferring property. I can set uh, titles of property and put them in Bitcoins or fractions of Bitcoins, and then I can transfer that fraction of Bitcoin to you. And I know that the only one that holds this specific Bitcoin or a fraction of a Bitcoin is the only one that legitimately has a property title. It could be used for contracts. It can be used for escrow. It can be used to set up entire exchange networks and investment networks. Uh, people are recording their marriages on it. If you have a kid, you don't want to rely on the county clerk to record the, the birth of your child. You could, you could transcribe it into the blockchain. It'll be there for all of history. It can't be duplicated. It can't be counterfeited. So there is this value in the Bitcoin, capital B Bitcoin network outside of the wow. currency itself. And that's why I legitimately believe that, you know, Bitcoin's not just a phenomenon that's going to come and go. This is some genuinely revolutionary stuff here. And the value of it's going to go through the roof once the mainstream masses genuinely see how useful it truly is. It makes me think of tally sticks from the old English on steroids, right? Because <laughs> you, you couldn't, you, you could have one half of it, but when it came down to the accounting, if the two pieces didn't fit together, it w and there was no way you could you could you know replicate that. There was too much going on there, and, and bitcoins like that times a thousand. Like there has to be the key and the code have to match in, in layman's terms, or you know it's not it's not legit. Yeah, yeah, it's hardcore and it completely does away with a third party that's needed 
you know, Visa. We trust Visa in order to make sure that people aren't spending my money or engaging in fraud or people aren't spending the same money twice. This method of encryption that it utilizes to match up the public and private key takes care of that, you know. So you have to have a little bit of faith in the in the software and the code, but it's open source. And even if yeah. like, some government were to try to come in and take advantage of it or manipulate it, there's really nothing they could do. And if they want to regulate it out of existence, I don't think they're going to be able to. The cat's out of the bag. It's, it's yeah, Like I said, I hope they keep saying you can't put it in a bank account because <laughs> the day people are banking with, with Nations Bank or whatever, if they're still in business, whoever, Bank of America and Bitcoin it, is a bad day as far as I'm concerned. The whole point is to eliminate them, yep. to, to take the exchange between Jack Spirico and John Bush, not between Jack Spirico, John Bush, uh, Bank of America, and, 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 and Wells Fargo, right? Yep. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's so empowering to, to be able to transfer that money so quickly. It opens up the ability for micropayments. A lot of people are using for blog posts and on Reddit. If you like yeah. what someone says, you send them a little micro tip. And before, of course, you couldn't send a dollar with a Visa card. It would cost more to send the dollar. Yes. It yes. costs more for the transaction than the actual dollar has value. So there's just yeah, so I had many people ask me when I started. They wanted me to put like a tip jar on TSP. They're like, we can't join your membership, but you know, I can throw you a buck here and a buck there. I'm like, it would cost me 44 cents to get your dollar. And they're like, you still have 66 cents. And I'm like, no. By the time PayPal runs the transaction for me, I will have to pay... 44 cents more than the dollar you gave me. I will be in the hole to take a dollar from you. Yeah. And, and, and like you said now, someone that's trying to make a living as a blogger might have a, tens of thousands of, of readers, but they may not be able to pay a lot of money. But if everybody's throwing a buck here, a buck there, it adds up. And that gives a person a viable means of exchange. And it's value for value because – Let's face it, if I don't see value in your blog, I'm not giving you a quarter, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I'm not giving you anything unless I see value there. Yeah, and it's a good way to demonstrate value too, which you know, price systems are, of course. Uh, there's awesome little plugins for websites where you could literally have a little tip jar on each one of your posts for each one of the podcasts. And the ones that people love the most, they throw more change to. Then you, Jack Spierko, would even be able to see like, wow, the listeners really appreciate it whenever I talk about A, B, or C. You can see a lot of that with the view counts, too. There's actually a competition I'm participating in. It's being put on by a Let's Talk Bitcoin, which is this really popular Bitcoin podcast. And they're trying to find some new shows to join a network that they're going to be launching. So what they did was they set up 17 Bitcoin addresses, and they attached the podcast to each one of these addresses. And they're asking people to donate .0001 of a Bitcoin to count as one vote. So currently, there's these 17 different podcasts. I think I'm in second place right now. Oh, wow. Uh, it's exciting. Uh, but people are donating these micro votes, and they're able to tally who's the winner, who the winner's going to be. And uh, if people want to listen to the podcast, it's a 30-minute pilot podcast. You can find it at SovereignBTC.com slash podcast. But it got me thinking, like, you know, again, I'm not into voting, but there is a place for people to, to, to vote on things in certain voluntary associations or even in the status quo. You could run entire elections with the Bitcoin blockchain by having someone, you know, having a, an appointed board. Oh, there goes your election fraud, eh? Yeah, for sure. You send them a little, <laughs> uh, you send them a small, a Satoshi is the point zero, it's eight decimal points. Uh, that's the smallest that a Bitcoin can be divided to. You send them one of those. Uh, there's only a certain amount. No one can, can recreate the Bitcoin. You have them send it back to one central address. You can actually attach text 
and uh, written word to these Bitcoin transactions. It's all recorded in the public ledger. It's totally anonymous. You could count votes. You could run entire elections. You could you could do away with the fraud that's present in the current voting machines. There's just so many applications. I'm really excited to see the evolution of Bitcoin and how it pans out. Like I said, this is only the beginning. One of my good buddies said, uh, for people that think they, they missed the boat on Bitcoin, even as a means of, of making money on, on the investment as it in, increases in value, he said, don't worry, the sales haven't even been set. You know, you haven't missed the boat. This is the very yeah. beginning of this phenomenon. I think it has so much value. Everyone should give it a look. Well, I'm starting to see why the establishment is concerned about it far more than just from the, the direct monetary aspects with in enabling exchange. We've kind of gone into almost like a mini Bitcoin podcast. You seem very switched on about this, John. What I'd like to do, if we can, is bring you back in the future to talk just about Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, I've been looking for someone that really gets it and really understands it to talk about it uh, without just pushing it as do it. Um, so I'd like to bring you back to do that if we could sometime in the future. Yeah, I'd love to. Like I said, just straight for the past six months, <laughs> my daughter's even, uh, when I start talking about Bitcoin now, she's, no Bitcoin, Dad, no Bitcoin. <laughs> I think I need to take that. My wife with permaculture, she's like, no more. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been obsessing over it just because I, I mean, every once in a while something comes along. Like I was obsessing over Ron Paul because his message just resonated so well with me. I've been obsessing over the philosophy of sovereign living and gardening, and and when Bitcoin came around, and like I said, whenever I actually first used it, it's it's turned into an obsession because I, not only is it useful, and I see how it benefits my life, but I see how how it can essentially erode the state i think it's probably it's probably our best bet for doing away with the nation state one of the best bets of course as we talked about the whole podcast building those alternative networks and those communities i think that's the number one thing we can do but with money you know government it's economic slavery it's one of their biggest tools to enslave populations with the federal reserve and the central banking and the taxing and the just the social engineering they can do with the income tax alone this has the ability to circumvent all that and the sky's the limit. Yeah, yeah. So I dig that, man. Let's uh, let's let's get ready to wrap up here. Let's once again though let people know how how they can help you uh, with the work you're doing uh, with the Center for Natural Living and with Sovereign Living TV. Yeah, if, if people are interested uh, in helping out with the fluoride program right now, one fifty dollar donation will get one family the gift of safe water and. Uh, it's also being used as leverage to show the city council, you know, like, you guys are clowns. We're having to circumvent you to help these people. Look at these people that are directly being affected. My daughter has fluorosis. And if you mm. think she got it in utero, we moved out of the city to avoid the fluoridated water to get away from the hustle and bustle. We were on a little small municipal water supply. They told us that the water wasn't fluoridated. Texas was in a yet another drought, and uh, they were ordered to no longer use their own well. So unbeknownst to us... They were actually pumping in Austin water. Oh, God. Yeah, and we didn't realize it until the water was tested. So I, we think our daughter picked up fluorosis from, which is a little whitening of the teeth, from the in utero consumption from my wife, which is crazy. So we have we have a personal skin in the game outside of just the, the bureaucratic nonsense. So we can avoid that altogether. We hope people will participate. You know, 500 bucks will get 10 families the gift of safe water. And then if people want to support Sovereign Living the show, first thing you can do is check it out. Watch it. You'll be blown away. As you said, the production quality, it's better quality than a lot of the stuff you see on TV. We're so impressed with the Karmakazi Productions and what they're doing. We're doing it ourselves. It's been one of the most difficult undertakings of my life, trying to bring the money together and trying to orchestrate this production. But it's totally worthwhile because, again, if you watch the first episode, you'll see that we're we're putting it out there. You know, We're not watering anything down. We're not 
soft peddling any of the message. We straight up say that we're trying to build alternative institutions so people don't have to rely on government. Here's our story. Here's how we're doing it. Join us in doing so. So we're trying to still bring the money together to finish the next three episodes. We have episode one through three finished. You can purchase the DVD for $20. That'll be available at SovereignLiving.tv. And if anyone's interested in making larger donations, there'll be a spot there on the website they can do so. And if someone has a business or a cause that they want to see promoted through the Sovereign Living uh, medium, we're expecting we're going to get millions of views on this because we're going to put together a solid marketing budget once we release the full package. Uh, we'd love to have people support us, you know, 5000 bucks, 10000 bucks, whatever people can put in. And in exchange, we'll provide a slick, polished 30-second or one-minute video-style announcement that people could take and use on their own, too. So... We're trying to be creative and trying to provide value for value in addition to the value that we see in the show itself as a means of inspiring people to, to adopt this sovereign lifestyle. So the websites are centerfornaturalliving.org, uh, sovereignliving.tv, and if people want to learn more about Bitcoin or get some advice on that front, check out sovereignbtc.com. Well, cool, John. I appreciate that. I'll make sure there's uh, links to all of those in the show notes for today's show. And I appreciate you being with us on the air today. Yeah, thank you for all, everything you're doing. You're a great inspiration, Jack, and really excited about the, the reach that you have and, and how influential you are in, in encouraging people to change their lives. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with John Bush, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way